We've been going through the Gospel of John now almost a year, if you can believe it or not. And we are at the point in this Gospel John story where there is this rising tide of opposition to Jesus. Remember, we've, some weeks back, we learned earlier in John that, that Jesus had made quite the spectacle when he had been in Jerusalem before. He had been overturning tables and clearing the temple and making all kinds of threats about tearing the temple of God down and rebuilding it in three days. Then he had healed a man on the Sabbath which was, a, which was a, a, a Judaic no-no. And, and the last time we saw Jesus in Jerusalem back in John 5, people were, were muttering, they were mumbling, they were, they were wondering, is this, who is this man and what is he doing? And there was even some kind of talk of putting him to death. He was so offensive. And so from that point, Jesus departed Jerusalem. And we know from the other Gospels that he's been up in Galilee conducting his Galilean ministry for some time. But now, here we are. Jesus is faced with this prospect that it's the Feast of the Booths. And that's one of the great festivals of the Jews. And and what's challenging about this is that all Jewish males were required, if able, to make these pilgrimages and journeys. And so, so families, entourages would travel up to Jerusalem together from wherever they lived in the nation of Israel. His brothers, we learned last week, had approached him and said, hey, Jesus, you've been doing all kinds of cool stuff here in Galilee. You have been feeding 5,000 and walking on water. And why would you want to keep yourself secret? Reveal yourself. Go to Jerusalem. Join the party. Let the people, let the masses rally around you. And we learned last week, that Jesus would not because he knew that the Jews were looking to kill him, so he refused to go up publicly. But we did discover that he did indeed go up a bit later secretly. And and, and in our text last week, we see Jesus kind of walking into the middle of the temple, holding court, and he begins teaching. And, and And this passage can be a little bit confusing Because here you have Jesus, he's surrounded by hundreds of people in the temple court, and you have this faction and that group and that that sect, and they are all reacting in various ways to the teachings of Jesus. And, and, And sometimes it can get a bit confusing to figure out who are the players in this text, who's who's kind of represented, who are the parties. So I thought, well, what is the best, how do, how do we kind of conceptualize this? Because it's kind of foreign to us. And the best way that I know to think about this is, is thinking about British Parliament. We've been, my wife and I have been on a British kick this season. So if it's not British, we don't want any part of it. Let me just tell you. So we went to see The Darkest Hour with Winston Churchill. It's the days of, of Nazi Germany is on the brink of taking over all of Europe. And there's intense pressure within the British government to negotiate with the Nazis, to to sort of say, hey, keep the peace, don't invade us, we'll do whatever you say. And, and, And Churchill emerges as this central figure where he's trying to rally the country to say, no, no, we will we will not surrender. No, we will, we will not kowtow. We will, we will not bow the knee to Hitler in Nazi Germany. We don't want our kids speaking German. Nothing wrong with German. We don't want our kids speaking German down 30, 40 years from now. And, and the movie is about a series of discourses that Churchill delivers in Parliament. 
If you've ever seen C-SPAN or something that shows like Parliament, it is just like a mess of chaos, right? So you have the prime minister who comes to the, to the bench and he delivers his, his little discourse and he sits down and people just start doing all sorts of rude things, don't they? They start tapping their cane or booing or hissing or cheering or waving their little handkerchief. We don't have handkerchiefs in America, but the British do. They were waving their handkerchiefs. And, and sometimes the people who'd be cheering for him on one, on, on, after one discourse would be booing him after another. And it's, it's all confusing, and it's, it's this melding of people. But what you have that's the unifying force is the voice of Churchill. That at the end of the day, he is setting the agenda. His voice, his words, his authority become the sort of north star, the focal point. They're setting the agenda. It's what people are responding to. And if you can kind of get that picture in your mind, then this passage will make a little bit more sense. Jesus is in the middle of the temple court, and he is holding sway. And he's surrounded by hundreds of people who are eliciting various responses to different portions of his teaching. And it can sound confusing. It can sound baffling. It can sound very different and varied. But all of their responses have one Thing in common. They all exhibit the root of unbelief. And that is what we want to look at this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand. We stand when we read God's Word, not because it's trite or ceremonial, because it's just a statement on, on our behalf as a church family that we stand under the Word of God. And ultimately, we go as far in our spiritual lives and in our authority and knowing truth as the Word of God goes. And so I'm going to read this passage. We begin in verse 25 in John 7. Now some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. Father, we are just as much in need of the work of your spirit as the hardened hearers were and that we're reading about here in John chapter 7. Lord, we need your help 
We need your rescue. We need you to open our eyes. We need your grace and your mercy and your discernment. So, Lord, speak through me. Lord, let, let not a syllable come off my lips that is not reflective and true of your word and give the hearers ears to hear this morning. And so, Father, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, John's gospel, we're up to chapter 7, and there's actually 21 chapters in this, in this story of John and the ministry of Jesus. And, and John's gospel is a little different than the other three in that his gospel deals strictly and primarily with the three years of Jesus' public ministry. So, so space is precious. And it's interesting that of all of these 21 chapters, John devotes two whole chapters. Think about this for a second. He hardly does this for the, the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus, although he does. But there is no other part of his gospel where he spends more time on a singular event than here in John 7 and 8. He devotes two whole chapters to two days. 48 hours of Jesus in the temple, which must mean, which needs a signal to us, this is really important. Why has John gone to all this trouble to include this, what is seemingly this mass of opposition and conflict and chaos and unbelief? And it goes back, we know, to the purpose for which John wrote this gospel, John 20, 31. What does John say? And we've said it over and over and over again. I've written these things so that you might believe in Jesus. And in believing in him, that you might have life in his name. Now, if you've been with us in this journey through John, you might be getting a little bit fatigued hearing about this word belief or faith or unbelief. You might even be just a bit cynical and say, you know, Pastor Paul, do we really need to hear about belief or faith again? I mean, that's for non-Christians, right? That's the ABCs of the Christian life. I'm, I'm ready to move past that into the, the deeper, more profound sorts of, of truths that John might have for us. I already have faith. I don't need to hear about that. Is there anything in you that sort of has that response? If so, if so, can I just so gently encourage us and encourage you to rethink that. Because I think that's a wrong way to think about faith. You see, faith in Scripture is, is never a static thing. It's never a, a once and once only sort of reality. A one-time decision. In other words, I, I prayed a prayer. Or for all of you hippies back in the 70s, I sang Pass It On at the Young Life Camp. Okay, I still have my, my songbook, by the way. I was baptized in the Baptist church when I, was, when I was seven. I placed my faith a long time ago, Pastor Paul. That's, that's, that's passe. Just give me, give, give me the meat of the matter. That's, that's a dangerous way to think about faith. Because I believe the Scripture tells us that the only faith that saves is a persevering faith. The only faith that saves is a a biblical faith that is ongoing, that keeps on trusting. Just one, 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 two quick little verses from Paul. 
1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Listen to how Paul talks about the gospel and faith. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, you hear that, in the past, prayed the prayer, in which you stand. Hmm, that's interesting. I'm standing in faith. I'm standing in belief right now. Now listen to this, verse 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. That is exactly what John is concerned about. That's why we are here. Please understand something. Let's, just, let's, just, let's, let's put some parameters around this. The fact that you hold fast to your faith and grit it and, and, and endure to the end, that's not what saves you. What Paul is saying is that those who are saved, God holds fast. They are secure in the bosom of the Father. We're going to get to John chapter 10. God's given me his sheep and none will I cast away. Saving, persevering faith is a result of God's sovereign faithful work in your hearts. So there can never be a time in our Christian life where we say, faith, eh. <laughs> I'm going to put that aside. I'll circle back around to that a decade from now, two decades from now. Very dangerous way to think. That's not biblical faith. John is going to show that to us by highlighting the response of three different groups of people and the way they respond. We're calling this one 48 Hours in the Temple. Sounds like a crime drama, I know, but let's go with it. Three groups of people. First of all, look at verse 25. Is a group that, that John describes as the people of Jerusalem. Now understand, this, these are distinguished from the crowds we read about last week who were scoffing at Jesus when, he, when Jesus said, hey, some of you want to kill me, and they're, they're mocking him. This is a different crowd, a different group, a different party, so to speak, right? A different party. And, and, and these are natives of Jerusalem. They're part of the cultural and, and religious elite. They're natives. They've lived there. They know the gossip on the street. And they know that these authorities, these Jewish leaders, are on a one-way path to try to take Jesus' life. Which means that when they come into the temple and there is Jesus, they're kind of shocked. And look, at, look back at the text. They're, Jesus is teaching and they say, isn't this the man who they seek to kill? I mean, are, are they trying to arrest this man? And then, and then you can just hear the scorn in verse 26. Surely they don't think he's the Christ. Because when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, when they say, we know where this man comes from, but this, the, the, you can't really see this in the English, but in the Greek, it's, it's the strongest sort of adversarial tone. Okay? Oh, like, who is this fellow? This fellow, we know who he is. This backwoods, hayseed, hayseed, East Tennessee, man from Galilee, right? I can say that. That's where I'm from. This, this is, I mean, we know where this man comes from. And, 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 but we know the Messiah when he comes. No one will know where he comes from. He'll just sort of appear. Now, how do they know that? What are they talking about? 
See, there was this sort of this urban legend, and you guys, you understand what urban legends are, right? Things that are commonly accepted as gospel truth that aren't really true, okay, that are later exposed to be fake. Do you realize there's a whole cottage industry of websites committed to unmasking urban legends, okay? And I'm thankful for their service, personally, just to be honest with you. So, so we, we, we've always been told Napoleon was a wee man, right? He was short, so much so that if, if you had a Napoleon complex, what does that mean? I feel inadequate. I feel I got to make up for something. But in reality, Napoleon was not short, certainly not by that day's standards. He was five foot seven, which was above average height for the average French man, the poor French. But anyway, so, so it's an urban legend. It's not true. What else have you heard? Bulls respond to red, right? Just wave a red cloth in front of a bull's face. Kids, don't try this at home, okay? Don't go to Linda Ziegler's and try this either. That's not true. Bulls are what? Colorblind, okay? What are they responding to? Probably your ugly face and the fact that you're waving something in front of them. They're urban legends, and they easily take root. There's probably a hundred things just like that. Well, this was an urban legend among the Jewish people, that this idea that Messiah would just kind of magically appear in the temple out of nowhere. This was probably a misinterpretation of Malachi 3.1 and some other texts from the Old Testament. But the reality, and even the Jewish leaders knew this, they knew where Messiah would come from. From Micah, they knew that this, Messiah would come from Bethlehem. This was such an established truth in the religious circles that, remember when the wise men came to Jerusalem asking Herod, where to find the Messiah, what did Herod do? He called in the Jewish teachers, and they told him, Messiah is going to be coming from Bethlehem. But yet, yet, these people stubbornly, at all costs, sort of held on to this conviction. They didn't want to trouble themselves to find out what was really true or to read the Old Testament scriptures for themselves. They didn't take the time to ask Jesus where he was from. They just assumed, oh, I heard about that. Oh, yeah, that, that Jesus of, of Nazareth. And, and, and what we're finding here is their, is their dogmatism, their human-centered certainty gave them an easy excuse for not having to engage and to contend with what Jesus was really saying. And guys, we all do that. When the Word of God begins to encroach upon our lives, there are certain things that we love to hold on to dogmatically is that that is just the way it is. Well, Pastor Paul, how, 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 how could you really encourage us to be in church every Sunday? How could you really do that? Don't you know there's so many important things? There's t-ball and soccer and i didn't mean to go there this morning but i am okay and and oh i mean it's a cultural assumption well where did that come from where did where did this come from because i remember my 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 dad was my, my little league coach and it was an enduring ministry to me being involved in my life in this way but i always remember the day my dad almost got into a fight on the little league diamond it was a thing of glory and so he and other coach were arguing okay about, of all things, who was the home team 
and who was the visiting team. And this is crucial matter for eight-year-olds. We all understand this, right? There was no smartphone to draw up the app and look at the schedule, and there was none of this. And I remember my dad was absolutely certain. He was dogmatic. He needed no confirmation. He just knew that he was true. Thankfully, my dad doesn't use the computer and is not listening to the sermon right now. And so it comes about that later we went home, he looked at the schedule, and what did we, what did we find? Oh, <laughs> I was wrong. You know, guys, as a culture, we have never been so certain about our uncertainty, have we? Never so certain about our uncertainty. No one has a market on the truth, we're told. You can't trumpet one set of values over another. Come on, Pastor. You can't hold up one sexual standard for everyone. And we're so certain about our uncertainty, aren't we? This is the people in this text. Both feet planted firmly in midair. Let me just say this. If there's somebody in here, if you're in this morning, and you don't have a clue about Jesus Christ and his claims and who he is and what he's done and let me just say, have you examined the person of Christ? Have you, have you read the Bible? Have you read the Gospels? Have you, with, a, with, with an unbiased heart, come to him and said, God, if, if you exist, I want to know you, or, or are we just like these urbanites in Jerusalem, so certain about our uncertainty? Now, into the midst of this confusion about reality, Jesus, now listen to this, Jesus speaks with authority. Look at verse 28. It says, so Jesus proclaimed. Now understand, the word in the Greek means to cry out. The only other time in the Gospels where a stronger word is used for Jesus crying out was where? On the cross. But this is a very strong word. Jesus is saying, listen, I want to say something to your cultural confusion. I want to say something to you about your crisis of knowing. There's emotion. There's passion. And what does he say? You know me, and you know where I come from. Do you? Oh, do you? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Church, culturally, we are so desperate for anyone who will give us a voice of authority. And Jesus provides it right here. He simply says, if you recognize God, you will recognize me. And if you recognize me, you will recognize my words. Because all of us have an authority. All of us live a life of certainty based upon something. That's why we want to say, you may say, well, Pastor Paul, that is, it sounds so arrogant for Christians to say they, they, have, they have certainty. Understand something. We have certainty, but it's a humble certainty. See, it's, it's not an autonomous certainty. See, the culture, the world offers us up an autonomy that says, I am my own authority. I make my own decisions. Who says? Because I say. But 
But you're just a man. You're just a woman. You die. I die. We go to dust. We fail. We're broken. Our certainty is a humble certainty because it's derived from God. It's derived from God's spoken word, His Son, who's opened our eyes to see the truth that is in the words of life that Jesus gives us. Now, let me just say this as a church. Let me encourage us towards something. I'm I'm talking to you as if you're a believer, like you know Christ. You're trusting in Christ. Four Oaks Church has a reputation. I'm thankful for it, that we teach truth, that we preach truth, that we don't tiptoe around God's Word. And, and, And I'm encouraged by that. That's an endearing legacy that did not begin with me, did not begin with you, that goes all the way back 30 years to when the church was founded. But sometimes in those contexts, it can be very easy to take that for granted. It can be very easy to sort of slide into this dogmatic mode where you sort of absorb and regurgitate things that you've heard but have not assimilated into your own life, into your own heart. We never want to say into a response, about being questioned about why we believe what we believe. Well, my church told me so. Because that's, that's not going to cut it. That's, that's dangerous. See, we want to know why. See, the first steps towards apostasy and unbelief always start with we know when we really don't. See, I, as we start this, crank up this 2018 new year. Let me just continue to encourage us towards personal study, towards reflection, towards Bible studies, towards community groups, that we can own the authority of Jesus in our own hearts. It's not just something that we've, that we've assumed. It's not something that we've merely heard from our parents or from our pastors or our community group leaders, but it's become a part of our souls. Because dogma, if it's not underlined by a certainty and a knowledge of God's word, will die out after a generation. And we've seen it over and over and over again in the history of the church. Are you a student of the word? Do you see the truth of Christ's words? I come from the Father. I speak on his authority. We have a humble certainty. That's the Jewish crowd. Second second group of people we want to look at. Look at verse 31. And this group looks a bit more promising on the surface. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. What's wrong with that, Pastor Paul? That sounds... That sounds pretty good. Now, we're not going to say a lot about this group because we have spent the last several weeks talking about them. But I believe there are good reasons to think that this is not a hopeful response on the part of some in the crowds for a couple of reasons. First of all, when we get to the latter portions of John 8, when John has finished his discourse... I mean, when Jesus has finished his discourse at the end of chapter 8, it says that the people are attempting to stone and kill Jesus, and he's driven out of the temple. (laughs) Doesn't seem to be many followers in there. But I also think it's true because look at what, what it says in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs 
than this man has done? What, what, what caught their attention? The supernatural, right? The works. The, the, the fruit of Jesus' ministries. It wasn't his words. And where have we heard this over and over and over again? Because John wants to always bring us back to the point of there is a believing and then there is a not believing. And there's a way to believe that is not believing. John 2, 23 through 24. Now when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so this was a year and a half prior, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Just what this verse says, right? But, but, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because, they, because he knew all people. In other words, they were following him because what they were getting. They loved the miracles. They, were, they loved the signs. They were attracted to the fame and the power of Jesus. And that seems to be sort of the reflection of this crowd here in verse 31. When Messiah shows up, will he do more signs than this? Oh, we love what you're doing, Jesus. We love your power, your might, your signs. You guys understand something? Believing in Jesus' power his ability to heal, his resurrection, those are all wonderful things. But they're not enough. It's not enough. Because Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and come after me. Biblical faith, being a Christian, doesn't mean from a distance admiring the supernatural works that we might observe here, there, and everywhere. Guys, this explains a lot of what we are trying to do when we gather here as God's people. Our goal is not to gather a crowd. Crowds are great. But we're not trying to tickle the ears of a crowd. We're not trying to to appeal to the lowest common denominator. We're not trying to to, to give a felt-need sort of sermon. We, we believe our job is to proclaim the Word of God and to let the chips fall where they may. It also explains why we think the totality of the Christian life does not extend to merely what happens in this room for one hour and 15, 20, maybe 25 minutes, okay, on, on a particular given Sunday. That's why we're talking about community groups, it's so why we talk about studying God's Word. It's so why we talk about membership. Because these are all ways that we don't want you simply to show up. We want you to have a deep, abiding faith in Christ through this process the Bible calls discipleship. Being a follower of Him. And so, no, I don't think this group, this crowds in verse 31, we don't have high hopes for them, not at this point. One last group we'll look at and we'll be done. Let's look at that at verse 32, the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders. So it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, something we need to understand here, chief priests is, is sort of a euphemism, another word for a group of leaders that came from the sect of the Sadducees. Okay, so, so in, in Jewish religion... There were two primary groups of leaders. You had the Sadducees and you had the Pharisees. They were two parties and they sort of ruled together on a 
decision-making council called the Sanhedrin. They hated each other. They were bitter enemies. They had a host of theological difference, not, not unlike Democrats and Republicans governing in Congress together. They hated each other, but who do they hate more than anybody? Trump. But that, that was a joke, okay. No, I mean Jesus, right? So they unified together these Sadducees and, and Pharisees. You know, interesting in World War II, I'm in, in, into the history stuff today. You know, Russia at the beginning of World War II was no friend to the United States. They were slowly taking over parts of Asia and the communist overthrow and the revolution. But there was a greater menace that emerged, which was Nazi Germany. And this idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend held sway in that war. And we sort of united uncomfortably for a time to defeat Nazi Germany, after which ushered in the Cold War. That's what's going on here. These two groups were so entrenched in their unbelief. They hated Jesus so much, they said, let's get together and be friends and be unified in our opposition to Jesus. We're going to send our version of the Godfather's Luca Brazzi, right? Sleep with the fishes. We're going to, we're going to send our enforcers to go deal with him and to arrest him. And we have to ask, what would compel these two groups who so hate Jesus, well, hate each other, to, a, to, to join together to oppose Jesus and his, and his teaching? And the answer is simply, is simply this. I don't think it's complicated. They hated him because he threatened their livelihoods. See, they made a living from preaching and teaching the Word of God. They made a, they made a living from keeping people enslaved to the, to the law. And they were, and Jesus was coming and disrupting their power base and their system, and they had something to lose. And it just, again, shows us the propensity of the human heart, does it not? It is so hard to submit ourselves when we know we have something or we perceive that we have something to lose. So whenever they talked or dialogued, about spiritual things with Jesus, it was never to learn, it was never to obey, it was to never repent, it was never to, to, to examine their own hearts. No, 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 it was, a, it was a time to stake out territory, personal interests, to look good for the people. That is the personification of unbelief, a refusal to honestly engage because of self-interest. I think almost not not every, almost every problem, I'm going to reach behind my back now. I believe almost every problem in parenting, every problem in marriage, every problem in counseling would go a long way towards resolution if we could just tell the truth. What's happened here in this situation? Well, mom and dad, this is, what I've, this is what I've done. This is what I'm struggling with. You seem so distant in our marriage. What's going on? Well, let me tell you what's going on in my heart. Hey, what's happened? I haven't seen you in, in, at church in six months. What's going on? <laughs> let me tell you about, Pastor Paul, my spiritual struggles. But see, when we're so vested 
in our self-interest, in our protection, in guarding our turf, in holding up a hand and saying, you can come this far, but not a step further. Preacher, you've gone from, from preaching to meddling. When that is our stance, ooh, we've taken some steps towards dangerous steps, towards unbelief. There was a story that has come out recently about Google and Google is a large corporation, has uh, lots, many, many hundreds, thousands of employees. And they have a system in there internally where if there's somebody you are uncomfortable with okay, or feel threatened by or just get the hibby-jibbies around, you can block them okay, in the company directory, which means that they cannot communicate with you, which means that, that, that you don't receive the same communications that you, you aren't put on the same project to work together. You don't have to engage them at all, right? You can see where this is going. It's now become this blacklist for people targeting other people because of their political beliefs. And people of certain political persuasions are sort of being left out of the loop and ostracized because they're threatening because they would force other team members to honestly engage, humbly engage. As there's a real spiritual metaphor there. Where in your life are you sort of hitting the block, the block button when it comes to the Word of God? Where am I doing that? That's what the Jewish leaders were doing. Didn't question him, didn't ask him where he was from, didn't ask him what he meant. When Jesus says, you are seeking me, but I will, I will be with you only a little longer, they mocked him. What do they say in the text? Look, it says, what does he mean he's going to go to the Greeks, the pagans, the Gentiles? He's a foolish man. A little, little, little foreshadowing of John here. Do you see this? Oh, yeah. They'll, oh, yeah. Jesus won't go to the Gentiles, but the world will. His followers will. The apostles will. Again, just John subtly showing us this point. Now, I think when Jesus says, You'll only be able to, to see me for just a little while, that he's leaving, that he won't be able to find him. I think this is a euphemism for the fact that life is short. Life is so short. Think about this, 60, 70, 80, 90 if you're lucky. Susan and I are turning 50 this coming year. We've lived more, probably more than half our lives, but you know what? we may actually have lived 99.9% of our lives and we don't even know it. And you too. And so there, there's a, there, Jesus is saying, there's a warning here that the time for faith, the time for belief, there is a window. It's an opportunity, but it's not here forever. It's closing. It's been appointed, Paul says, for all men to die and then to face judgment. Today is the day to open your heart to the Word of God. We close with this. Despite all the opposition, what, what does verse 30 tell us? So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Just a reminder, folks, just a reminder, in case we need reminding, God's Word, God's truth is unassailable. It conveys and carries divine authority. 
It does exactly what God intends for it to do. Despite the theological chaos of the temple, we have this picture of Jesus and his words above it, standing tall, reigning, bringing certainty to an uncertain people, if only they will hear. Everyone stakes their lives on certain certainties. What are yours? The prophet reminds us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, it, it endures forever. Let's pray.